Father in heaven, we are thankful to be here at the Michigan camp meeting. We're so thankful for the privilege we have to come together as like-minded believers to study your word and to understand your purposes for our life better. Lord, especially as we believe we live in a generation that will see Jesus come. We want to be ready for that day. And so we ask, Lord, that you would use this and other presentations here at camp meeting that would help us to be ready and help us to, to, to help others be ready as well. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to give you a little, little bit of a background uh, for myself. Uh, some of you perhaps have heard this before. My family grew up, I grew up as Seventh-day Adventists. My mom and dad were first-generation Adventists. And they actually, we all left the Seventh-day Adventist church in the early 1980s during the Desmond Ford crisis. Now, I don't know if you know about that or not, not necessary, not necessary that you do, but I want you to understand that for our family, the subject of Ellen White was not a positive one. And so that when I was in my mid-20s and the Lord was able to stir my heart and bring me to conversion and give my life to Him, and I was looking for which church to attend. Uh, I looked at the Adventist church among other churches, and you can believe I had a sticking point with the spirit of prophecy. And it led me to maybe a deeper study than many would go into, into the subject. So I want you to know a little bit about where I'm coming from from this. I came from a position of having a lot of skepticism, and some of the things that I'm going to share throughout this week and things that, that I'm sure many of you have heard about Ellen White, about her ministry, about whether or not she was a plagiarist and, and whether or not she had failed visions and all of these kinds of things, I, that was something that I had to answer for myself coming into the faith. And, um, and the Lord has, has impressed me to share those with others because I think it's very important. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to give this last message, the three angels' messages, with a loud voice. And that loud voice implies personal conviction. You can't give anything with a loud voice without personal conviction. And so we need to be settled on this matter of the spirit of prophecy as well as many other things. So I'm hoping that this seminar will meet that, uh, uh, that need among us. Now... Um, the, the title for the week's seminar is Whiteout, as you see that on the screen, Whatever Happened to the Gift of Prophecy, and uh, I want to tell you that attacks on Ellen White and her ministry are not anything new. Uh, in fact, I'd like you to turn with your Bibles this morning, and I hope you have your Bibles throughout the week. We'll be referring to them quite a bit here. Uh, we're going to the book of Revelation. There are a lot of things I'm going to bring up today that I'm not going to substantiate. We'll do that as we go through the week. I just need to lay some... Um, uh, groundwork this morning. Revelation 12 and verse 17, the Bible says, and the dragon was what? Now, if you're reading in the King James, it's the word wroth, and the New King James is the word enraged. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to break this passage down, but as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe of course, the dragon right there in the passage earlier tells us it's the devil, representative of the devil, and that woman represents the church. And Revelation 12 brings us down to the last days, which we believe Revelation 12, 17 points to, where the dragon is enraged with the church that keeps the commandments of God and has what's called the testimony of Jesus Christ. We believe that refers to the gift of prophecy, the ministry that was manifested through Ellen White and other prophets. And we're going to talk about that further in the week. But I don't want you to miss that first part. A lot of times when Adventists talk about this verse, and we say, well, there's two characteristics here of the remnant church. They keep the commandments, 
and they have the testimony of Jesus. But there's a third characteristic that too many people overlook, and that third characteristic is the devil is enraged with this church. You've got to be clear on that, and, and especially what two things, the commandments of God and the gift of prophecy. And so we should not be surprised at attacks on the gift of prophecy, neither outside the church or inside the church. Now, I want to share with you a statement here. Our title of our message today is Satan's Last Deception. It's going to come from a statement I'm going to share in just a moment. But I want to share this statement from Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 83. Ellen White says, All who believe that the Lord has spoken through Sister White and has given her a message will be safe from the many delusions that will come in these last days. I want to tell you that the devil knows this statement better than any of us knows it. And that's why he can't stand this gift of prophecy. It's one of God's ways to help ensure his people are ready for the coming of Jesus. Um, the devil has, has, has attacked the spirit of prophecy, as we've uh, mentioned. And today in the church, I'm afraid we're just, just, we're just plain confused about the role of Ellen White's gift in our church. Um, I was just talking to a young man yesterday. He's going to the seminary. said that the, one of the professors had brought up uh, this, one of the statements where Ellen White says that the Lord could have come to our earth ere this, before now, had God pe God's people done the work that God had given them to do. And he said one of the other students, this is one of the theology students, said, well, wasn't that Ellen White's, just Ellen White's opinion? Wasn't that her opinion? And, and the teacher, the professor responded, well, no, that was something she received by inspiration. Well, the response came back, well, how do we know that that came from inspiration? I mean, it sounds kind of like just her opinion to me. And that would be... I, I suppose I wouldn't be so bad if it were a very isolated comment, but it's not an isolated comment. In fact, many of the students who ask questions like that are getting their ideologies from some of our other teachers. I'm just saying that this issue is a widespread issue, and so this week we'll be addressing some of these questions and, God willing, some of the answers. Today I'm going to be sharing some examples, a little bit of history, and uh, as we progress throughout the week, I'm going to attempt to provide clear answers from leaders, scholars, but more importantly from Ellen White herself. I think she gives very clear answers to some of these uh, accusations. Now, I've shared some of what I'm going to share today in a presentation I, I, I called at one point, Betrayed with a Kiss. You know, taking from Judas, who betrayed the Lord, not with a, he didn't punch, Judas didn't betray Jesus with a punch in the mouth. He betrayed him with a kiss. He betrayed him in a way that looked like he was on Jesus' side. I chose not to use that title today because today I'm going to share with you things, attacks from within the church, from outside the church, and from within the church. And I, and I maybe even should be careful to use the word attacks because I have read, and some of what I'm going to share today are actually labeled as defenses of Ellen White's ministry. But the net effect of the defense is to weaken it, not strengthen it. And I'm not using the Betray with a Kiss title because it implies that the people who are maybe presenting some of these views that I'm going to share today are intentionally trying to deceive. I don't believe that. I think we have many sincere leaders and scholars who are trying to make Ellen White's writings relevant in our day, but I'm afraid that in the way they're doing it, they're making her writings of none effect. Now, that's, this is what I mean by that. I'm going to take you to a statement where Ellen White talks about what she calls the very last deception of Satan. You should see this on the screen. Selective Messages, Volume 2, page 78. Notice what it says. The very last deception of Satan will to be what? 
Notice the language there. To make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Now, she's coming, about, coming on her own ministry and her own writings. Then she quotes Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. We're going to look at that in another translation as we come toward the end of this presentation. She continues, Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's people, God's remnant people, in the true testimony. Now, in the context of this, she's talking about her writings. And she says the very last deception of Satan will be to make them of, of none effect. Now, as Ellen White often does, she's using the language of Scripture here. We're going to look at that in a minute because for us to understand this terminology is key. What, is, what does she mean of none effect? What is she really saying this very last deception will be? I need to interject here that if you read in the writings of Ellen White, you're going to find that uh, she uses, she talks about last deceptions in other areas. I don't think she's talking chronologically. I don't think we're going down through time and saying the very last chronological thing that's going to happen. I don't think that's what she's saying. I believe that when Ellen White is talking about the very last deception, what she's addressing is something that, that when this deception takes hold, Satan will know his, his cause is secure. Last in the terms that once the devil pulls this one off, he's got it. And you're going to see uh, what we mean by that as we continue today. Um, let's go to our scriptures here this morning. Let's go to the Lord's scriptures. And look at this. Uh, seek to answer this question. What did she mean by the phrase of none effect? We're going to the book of Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Now I'll be reading in the New King James Version. Of none effect is King James language. Of no effect is what it will say in the in the New King James, but the idea, you'll see, is the same. We're going to Matthew chapter 15, starting in the first verse, and we're looking at what this phrase of none effect means. The Bible says in Matthew 15, verse 1, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why also do you transgress the commandment of God because of what? Your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to shame. But you say, verse 5, I'm sorry, let him be put to death. I, I, pardon me. Verse 5 says, But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, What? Ever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God, what? Of none effect, of no effect by your tradition. Now understand the practice here. Uh, in, in, in some places where you read this passage, they, they pronounced a, a, a saying over their possessions called Corbin. They'd say it's Corbin. You may have read that before. It's a gift to God. That's what it meant. The Jewish leaders, you know, God in his teachings had, had, had enjoined upon people to provide for their parents in old age. But what the leaders had done is they'd made this, this, this uh, way out where you could take your, your property, your possessions, and you could pronounce it Corbin. That was a way of dedicating it as a gift to God. In other words, you're saying, hey, the, everything that I own, I've, I've give, I pledged it to the church. What that meant is you can live on it the rest of your life. You can use your money, your property, everything else is yours 
but you can't give it to anybody else because it belongs to the church. So you can use it, but you can't give it to your parents, you can't give it any, and then when you die, it goes to the church, to the temple, whatever else. And so what Jesus is saying is you guys have adopted this custom that has basically exempted you from having to follow the commandment of God. You have this tradition of pronouncing this blessing, this corbin upon your, this, uh, dedicating it as a gift, and what you've done in effect is you have, you have again, exempted yourself from the commandment of God. You've, are you following the practice there? Now here's, here's the question, and this is what we want to get to the bottom of. In this practice of pronouncing their, their property as a gift of God, did the religious leaders deny the commandments of God? Did they say, we don't believe in the commandments of God, we don't believe they exist, we don't believe they're important? Is that what they said? Listen carefully. The net effect of this practice was not to say we don't believe in them. The net effect of the practice was to say they don't apply to me. Are you following that? This is the language that Ellen White is using when she says the very last deception of Satan is, to get to meet, is going to be to make, of her write, make her writings of none effect to the people of God. Not that we're going to say, oh no, they, we don't believe in Ellen White. We don't believe she was a prophet. We don't believe what she wrote was true. Don't need to go there. All we need to do is get to the point where we say, but they don't apply to us today. Have you ever heard that? The very last deception of Satan, we're told. And so, in the same way that the Pharisees and scholars didn't deny the Word of God, they simply stripped it of its authority in their personal lives. In the same way, Ellen White points to the very last deception of Satan, not as leading Seventh-day Adventists to deny or openly oppose her writings, some do, but to regard them in such a way that it nullifies the gift and robs the testimonies of their authority. Okay, hold on to that thought, and let's talk about prophetic authority. Now, <clears throat> some of you may be aware that our denominational, our fundamental belief number 18 is on the gift of prophecy, and it was changed at our last general conference session in 2015. Are you aware of that? Now, let me just assure you, the change did not change our belief. I have heard things, I've seen things on the internet, the Adventists have given up their belief, that's not true, but I'm going to give you a little history lesson on that. Here's the belief from the 2005 edition of Seventh-day Adventist Fundamental Beliefs, and also you'll find it in the 2010 church manual. Fundamental belief number 18. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church and was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. As the Lord's messenger, her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be what? Must be tested. Now that is, or was, fundamental belief number 18. I want you to continue on here. This needs to go on the screen as well, telling your guys. This phrase, this phrase has caused us some challenges. Uh, and I don't disagree with the phrase, but I'll explain what I mean by that. A continuing and authoritative source of truth. That's been a rub for some of our critics. So let me give you some examples. Dennis Palmer, uh, a former Adventist, wrote an article, and he, he, he is cited in Judd Lake's book, Ellen White Under Fire, which is a very helpful book on the ministry of Ellen White. It covers a lot of things we're not going to have time to. 
He quotes Dennis Palmer, and this is Judd Lake, and you'll see the quotations of Dennis Palmer. So in, in his book, Judd Lake's book on page 149, while her statements, Elmite statements on the relationship of her writings to the Bible may give the appearance of orthodoxy, right? The Bible's superior. We, we, we don't, you know, my writings are not above the Bible, whatever. He says, sounds good. She really takes away the Reformation teaching of sola scriptura, only the Bible, by asserting her writings as authoritative. Now, you're going to understand as we continue on today and through the week, we're going to look at this, uh, I believe it's on Tuesday, very much in depth. But there's this mindset that if we allow Ellen Wright's writings to have any authority, then we are placing them on the same level as the Bible, if not above the Bible. This is, this is what's being communicated, and this is what this gentleman is saying. As soon as you accept her writings as authoritative, you're denying the Protestant principle of, of sola scriptura. Now, I don't believe that. And we don't believe that at Seventh-day Adventists, but this is the accusation. Similarly, as far back as D.M. Canwright, uh, in his book, Life of Mrs. E.G. White, SDA Prophet, False Claims Refuted, and, and, and Canwright had been an SDA evangelist prior to this, he says, it is the Bible and something else. It is the Bible and the writings of Mrs. White for Seventh-day Adventists. They don't believe in just the Bible. They can't believe in just the Bible. They have to have the Bible and the writings of Mrs. White. And again, we'll expound on this as we go. I need to say this here. I'm going to say this here. We, we say that. I don't have a problem with that. And we say we believe in the Bible and we believe in the writings of Ellen White. And sometimes we'll say the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And we use that together. But let me just be, be very clear on something. The reason Seventh-day Adventists believe in the writings of the spirit of prophecy is because of the Bible and the Bible only. I'm going to tell you, if the Bible did not tell me that there was to be a prophetic gift and that I was to pay attention to it, then I wouldn't. But when the Bible and the Bible only tells me that God has manifested the gift of prophecy in His church, and that in the last day church there's a special manifestation of that gift, for me to ignore it is to ignore the Bible and the Bible only. Okay? We'll get into that a little bit further. Now, going on, Dr. Walter Martin, some of you are familiar with Dr. Walter Martin, wrote The Kingdom of the Cults, The Rise of the Cults, at one time had classified the Seventh-day Adventist church as a cult, and after meeting with Adventist leaders, he, he pulled back on that and said, well, they're different, but they're orthodox enough to be a Christian church. In an interview on the John Ankerberg Show, now, if you, I don't know if anybody ever seen the interviews with the John Ankerberg Show, Okay, we have, in, in 1844, October 21, 1844, actually October 22, 1844 was the Great Disappointment. If there was a second Great Disappointment, it was the John Ankerberg Show and the interviews with, with uh, William Johnson. And I, I won't say more than that. I'll just say the answers that he gave. Elder Johnson was the editor of the Adventist Review, and they just were not... Dr. Martin was, was pressing him. Now, this set of interviews came in 1985. It was in the wake of the Desmond Ford crisis. There were ministers leaving the church. Walter Ray had written his book, The White Lie. There were all kinds of questions about the spirit of prophecy. And so he was, he was grilling uh, uh, William Johnson on these things and was asked the question, Dr. Martin, what would it take for you to reclassify the Seventh-day Adventists as a cult? And this is a piece of his answer. He says, there are people who have specifically stated that Ellen White is the interpretive authority and you involve yourself in circular reasoning. Because if the Bible is supposed to be the judge of everything, and there is someone who judges the Bible or interprets the Bible for you, that, uh, that's the final court of appeal to you. Now that sounds like a very reasonable answer. And we're going to look at, there's a part of it that's reasonable, and there's a part of it that's not. But I'm just telling you, this is the mindset that the people had looking at Seventh-day Adventists. That continuing an authoritative source of truth is a rub. Makes it sound like the Adventists, they say they believe the Bible, they say the Bible's the foundation of everything, but it is not the case. This, is, this has been the mindset of, of some of these 
uh, outsiders. Dale Ratzlaff, former Seventh-day Adventist minister who has, uh, he's the, uh, oh, what's his ministry here? I had it jotted in my notes. Um, Life Assurance Ministries, he's behind or was behind the Proclamation magazine. I think he's still involved um, proclaiming the real gospel and drawing people out. His ministry is to basically um, pull people out of the Adventist church. He's got a big former Adventist ministry In his book, The Truth About Adventist Truth, he said, Ellen White, as a source of truth, drawing from that uh, fundamental belief, Ellen White, as a source of truth, is perhaps the underlying error, that's his emphasis, the underlying error of the SDA church. While the Adventist church claims to be a Bible-based church, the leaders know very well that Bible study without Ellen White interpretation will lead members out of the church. Her writings serve as a prism through which Adventists interpret Scripture. And in another place he says, Ellen White is the prism that colors every Adventist doctrine. Now we're going to get into that. I wish I could get into more of that today. We're not going to. So we'll get into it further. So in light of a lot of these types of statements and misunderstandings, we reworded our fundamental belief number 18 in the 2015 General Conference session. I was there for the vote and what have you. And this is the statement. You've got it on the screen, or you will here. The Scriptures testify, this is the new one, The scriptures testify that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church, and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. Her writings speak with what? Prophetic authority and provide comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction to the church. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. Okay, now I'm going to share the other one. The primary difference here, if you look at that on the screen again, now then, this, was the, this was the previous one. Notice that underlined part. Her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth, which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction. Now here's the new one. Her writings speak with prophetic authority and provide comfort, guidance, instruction, correction. The thing that was taken out was the source of truth because we didn't want people to get mixed up with the idea. They read source of truth as, well, the Bible's a source of truth and Ellen White, so you have two sources of truth. Well, we don't believe that way, and so we reclarified that into beliefs. I'm perfectly fine with fundamental belief number 18 as it, as it reads now and the reasoning for it. But I'm going to tell you that for those who want to find fault with Ellen White, that didn't help matters. Now, what I've shared with you so far, incidentally, what I've shared with you so far has to do or comes from those outside the church, and we would expect those responses from people outside the church. More recently, though, we've heard similar concerns expressed among an increasing number of Seventh-day Adventist church members and leaders, and that's where some of my concern um, begins to grow. The annual council session of October 7, 2002, the recent, uh, sorry, the results of a survey conducted by the Strategic Planning Commission of Seventh-day Adventists were shared. Those results shared at that general, annual council is like a general conference session between the general conference sessions. It's an official world church meeting that happens in the fall of the year. Um, The results were shared indicating that 50% of Adventists felt a reinterpretation of Ellen White's authority was needed for today. Now note the word authority. That's what we're really going to zero in on here. Um, New ideas of Ellen White's authority. And so the reinterpretations have been coming for some time. Beginning at the edges, you know, uh, where where maybe it's it's, uh, 
uh, from a perspective of, well, this is over on the, the liberal edge of things. Um, and, and, you know, we would expect that somebody might present something that's maybe not as fully Adventist. And then marching right into the mainstream. These interpretations have been coming beginning on the edges and marching right into the mainstream. And I'm going to try to demonstrate that with just two examples that span a 13-year period of time, starting with a gentleman by the name of Graham Bradford. Now, Graham Bradford was a, when he wrote his book, More Than a Prophet, another book very similar. Uh, first, he wrote a book. Now, Graham Bradford was retired professor um, from Avondale, he was an Adventist evangelist and what have you in Australia. He wrote a book called Prophets Are Human, and, and the book was a, it was a story, dialogue between a person, a fictitious person giving Bible studies to some new people who had questions about Ellen White. And so this, his Bible studier in the, in the book Prophets Are Human was trying to help these new believers understand Ellen White's role better. And so in that, he was propagating his view of how to help people with some of these, you know, you hear Ellen White's a critic, or a plagiarist, and you hear Ellen White had, had visions that failed and all of this, how do you handle that? So his book, Prophets Were Human, did that in, in a story format, and then he put it in more of a, an explanation of theology format in his book, um, More Than a Prophet, that I've retitled Less Than a Prophet, and you'll see why in a minute. His book was an attempt, as I said, to defend Ellen White's ministry, um, and re-educate. In fact, that book was, when it was published, the, the, I don't know who paid for it uh, to be handed out, but it was handed out to ministers, free copies, so ministers, uh, I believe teachers, I don't know if I'm, I, I'm totally sure about if, if it were teachers, I know for the ministers, the book was just widely distributed as a resource to help ministers explain Ellen White's ministry. Here's some of the, here's some of the conclusions in, or, or some of the reinterpreted views of Bradford that he shares in his book, and I'm just summarizing these. Old Testament prophets are more authoritative than New Testament prophets. Uh, so in the Old Testament prophets, it was more the voice of God. In the New Testament, not, not so much. Now you can see where this is going to go. Concluding, following up with that, New Testament prophets are more fallible because they're not as authoritative, they're not as inspired. And incidentally, surprise, surprise, Ellen White was a New Testament prophet. He goes on to say that we all in the New Testament era share a level of the gift of prophecy. So that comes out in his book. Prophets made theological mistakes in their counsel was something that he shares because prophets are human after all. Um, and, and, and I want to tell you that, that as we go on this week, we're going to talk about this. We don't believe Ellen White was infallible. We, don't believe, we do believe she was human. We do believe she made mistakes, but we don't believe those mistakes came out as counsel to God's people. We believe that the Lord preserved, let the writers of the Bible were human. One of the things that we're going to address as we go through the week is this. Inspiration is inspiration wherever you find it, and it comes from the Spirit of God. And if somebody's inspired by the Spirit of God, there's not a different inspiration for Bible prophets than extra-canonical Bible prophets that is outside the Scripture. If it's a, the Spirit of God inspires somebody with truth, then the Spirit of God is going to maintain that truth. And what I mean by that is this. Whatever fault we find with Ellen White, if we say, well, you know, the, Ellen White was human, she made mistakes, and... And listen, if the Lord couldn't stop Ellen White from publishing those mistakes, then how can we be sure he could stop the authors of Scripture from publishing mistakes? Once you start to find fault with inspiration in one point, you're going to be in trouble with inspiration on every point. Which is why Ellen White says that those who give up faith in the testimonies are going to end up giving up faith in the Bible. Now, we'll get into that as we go on. So, his view, this new view, prophets' mix, uh, messages were often a mix of truth and error. 
uh, and prophets grew in their theological understanding. Now, again, this is one of those half-truths. You hear that. How many of you have heard this? Ellen White grew in her understanding. Absolutely true. But then what happens is people will say that and they'll put this spin on it as if to say, since she grew in her understanding, what that means is the earlier writings were not as maybe reliable as the later writings. His point, prophets grew in their theological understandings, allowing for potential erroneous, that is, false theological ideas to be communicated in their earlier materials. That means, hey, I'd be better off just not to read Ellen White's earlier materials because they may contain error in them. And then how do I know when the, when the transition point is? Anyway, this, the Biblical Research Institute responded to this book. Uh, Dr. Angel Rodriguez, he said this, if we consistently apply the hermeneutics found in this book, now he's speaking about uh, Bradford's book, Prophets Are Human, uh, it's, the same, it's the same theological concept shared there in that story form. If we consistently apply the hermeneutics found in this book to the Bible, its authority would be drastically, I'm sorry, would be seriously affected. The drastic dichotomy between thought and word offered by Bradford and others now, I'm picking, I told you, I'm picking two examples, but there's a whole spectrum in between. By Bradford and others is damaging to the biblical concept of inspiration. We'll be talking about the biblical concept of inspiration this week, but just understand that this, uh, this is his comment on Bradford's book. Now, as I mentioned, Dr. Graham Bradford was um, not well known in the States, really wasn't well published. Uh, and he was also considered a more liberal scholar. You can almost expect some of that feedback or his, that viewpoint. Now we're going to fast forward 13 years, and we're going to come to one of the most well-known, well-published, and well-loved Adventist authors, Dr. George Knight. And uh, I don't know, I can't say, I'm not trying to read anybody's motives here, but I'm, I'm just telling you some of the things that, that I'm hearing and reading that are just plain wrong and they're going to trip up God's people in a big way. Knight has just published a book called Ellen White's Afterlife. And I've just gone through this. I'm not, I read the book, so you don't have to. Let me, let me tell you that. I wouldn't wait. There are books that I've had to read in order to present things. And I, I'm going to tell you, I seriously battle wasting my time. There are so many things I want to read, and I'm like, Lord, do I have to do this? There's so many good things. I'm recommending not to waste your time on it. But... I'm going to give you a little synopsis of, of Knight's book. Now, we'll look at that statement in a minute. It's an interesting book. Again, this book is to try to help Seventh-day Adventists to better understand uh, Ellen White's writings. And I've read some good and positive things from Dr. Knight, but the tenor of this book, let me tell you this, just as with, well, we'll get to it in a minute. Um, he begins his book with a chapter called The Wonderful World of Ellen White in the 1960s. And he characterizes most Adventists from that time period as almost, and these are my words, almost like a gullible, simplistic, we believe everything Ellen White says and we just do what she says and, and, and we're happy in our ignorance kind of uh, uh, society. Not just from, from laypersons, but from the most common layperson to tenured professors of theology like uh, Leo Van Dolsen, like Robert Olson, like Carl Kaufman, like William Hyde, all of whom, according to Knight, held Ellen White to be centrally authoritative, authoritative in every way, a deciding authority. Notice that word authority keeps coming up, and, it, and he's not using it in his book in a positive way. It's a pejorative. It's a very negative way. It's like, this is the way we used to do it. In the wonderful world of Ellen White, we're all ignorant about reality. 
Uh, I, that's the gist of that chapter. He says in that chapter, as I had up here on the screen, commenting of that period of time, the Bible, of course, was important, most important theoretically, but in practice, Ellen White had the final authoritative word. There's a lot I could say. I, 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 there's so much I'm trying to share and get done in my time this morning, but let me say this. I am not disacknowledging that Ellen White has been misused. We're going to talk about that this week. She has been misused. She has been misinterpreted. People have been beat over the head with Ellen White. That kind of thing has happened, and I won't deny that. But let's just be clear. Outside the Adventist church, they don't say, they beat me over the head with Ellen White. They say they beat me over the head with the Bible. That's what they say down south in the Bible Belt. So are we going to just stop? I don't read the Bible anymore because people beat me over the head with it. Really? That's really smart, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. If somebody beats you over the head with any kind of theology, who do you think is behind it? Is God behind it? There's only two ways you can go, right? If God's not behind it, the devil's behind it. Now, here's the important follow-up question. What do you think his purpose is? To get you to read more of it or less of it? And if you're like, I'm not reading it because I got beat over the head, guess who you just listened to? You understand? The devil accomplishes purpose. So I'm not denying that, that there have not been things that have been misused in her writings. But this blanket statement of, of the 60s, for example, uh, and, and notice what he's saying. The Bible was important in theory, but really, it isn't true. Don't you notice that this is what we just read from Walter Martin, from Dale Ratzlaff, from, right, the critics outside the Adventist church, only this isn't the Adventist church, this isn't outside, this is inside. And it's not Graham Bradford on the fringes, it's mainstream conservative Adventism. George Knight says, I'm a conservative Seventh-day Adventist. And right here it is, and we're like, oh, well, you know, we get... And too many of God's people read this stuff and eat it up without knowing uh, where to go. And I'm hoping that this seminar gives us a little bit of direction. Now, one of the things he says in the close of his chapter of uh, The Wonderful World of Ellen White in the 1960s, he says this, the most remarkable thing about those early 1960s perspectives related to Ellen White is that she herself did not believe them nor agree with them. And neither did most of those of her contemporaries who worked closest with her. That is not a true statement. And, uh, you know, there's partial truth in that. So, as Knight finishes uh, his, his second chapter, his second chapter then is to highlight these things that didn't... In fact, in fact uh, what, what is it titled? I had it here in my notes. That the second chapter is called... Uh, um, I don't have it in here. It's something like Ellen White didn't believe in the wonderful world. And it goes into what she didn't believe. And he summarizes it in four points. This is, this is what I want to share with you. And we're coming to a close here. Ellen White never claimed verbal inspiration. Okay? That's true. That's a true statement. We're going to talk about that and the implications of that. His second point Ellen White did not believe her work should be viewed as a divine inspired commentary on the Bible or that they should be used to settle doctrinal issues. I hear this all the time in our day. It is false. And it is, listen to me carefully, it is demonstrably false. That means I can demonstrate it. You're not going to have to take my word for it. I'm going to show you this week, not from a scholar, from Ellen White's own mouth, this is not how she viewed her writings. Yes, there are times that she was very clear, don't use my writings to settle this controversy. But there are other times when she was very clear, do use my writings to settle this controversy. And we're going to talk about that as we go. But, I, you know, th uh, let me continue. Two more points. 
Not everything in Ellen White's works came straight from heaven as divine revelation. I call that true-ish. It is true. There were things Ellen White wrote that didn't come straight from divine revelation. But what happens is, statements like this are made and then they're slanted to give the impression that because they didn't all come from divine revelation, we really don't know in her writings what did and what didn't. And so we can't be sure that some of the things her writings, in her writings were really from the Lord, and so we're better off just to read her writings more devotionally and not let them be an authority, which kind of stems back to that last uh, statement. His last point here, and I hear this a lot today, Ellen White was consistent. So Ellen White said this and believed this. Ellen White was consistent, he says, that her works were not to be made prominent in sermons and other public formats. And he goes on in his book, Ellen White was not supposed to be used in sermons, and this didn't used to be the case, and, and we shouldn't be bringing it, we should be preaching from the Bible. Uh, I know that there are people that are going to be upset, because I brought up George Knight, and they love Dr. Knight. I, Dr. Knight is a great guy, he's a wonderful guy, and I'm not commenting on that. Again, I don't know his motive, but the statement, this statement here, it attacks our speaker this weekend. Elder Finley's already brought up spirit. Was he not understanding the counsel of Ellen White? She was clear, consistent that her work shouldn't be. And how many of our preachers, and as a preacher, I've had people say this, well, you're not supposed to use Ellen White's writings in sermons. That's, that is not only false, it's blatantly false. And again, demonstrably false. And I will show from her very own writings that she says exactly the opposite. Now, having said that, that's not to say, I mean, the point, yeah, our, our proofs need to come from Scripture. But that doesn't mean we can't share a spirit of prophecy. Now, we're going to go into that um, as we go on through the week. So I want to conclude what we've looked at here. These claims of Dr. Knight, as with Dr. Bradford, as with Ratzlaff, as with Martin, as with Canwright, as with the many others who might be named, both inside and outside the church. My purpose isn't to name everybody. All of these strike directly at Ellen White's prophetic authority, in essence, making of none effect the counsel of God to the church of God. Folks, this is, this is a prophecy in fulfillment. Authority is what makes the prophetic ministry effective. Can you imagine David going to, uh, or, or rather Nathan going to David and saying, Thou art the man without prophetic authority. And David saying, Well, I'm not sure if that's inspired or your own opinion. What would, been, what would have been the effectiveness? The, the, the whole history would have been changed. It's because David recognized, and incidentally, Nathan was a non-canonical prophet. He wasn't in the Bible. David could have said, well, you're not one of the Bible prophets. <laughs> and I am, by the way. David was, right? But he took that counsel as counsel from God, and it saved his soul. Authority is what gives the prophetic ministry its effectiveness, without it, everything the prophet says is at best good advice or at worst the prophet's own unenlightened opinion. And authority is also the underlying cause for contention among fallen humanity. Authority, and Elder Mitchell brought it up in the opening sermon. That's why surrender is such a big issue and that's why it's so hard for us. There's one authority that fallen beings recognize and that's me. That's ourselves. That's our nature. And so to submit to another authority is not natural for us. And if we can find a spiritual way to do it, we do. It is this issue of authority, prophetic authority, that demands the submission of our will to Christ. 
and leads even the professed people of God sometimes to resist him. In a very telling statement, in, in the midst of Bradford's book, this is, he, when, he, when he goes over these new ideas of a prophet, prophets are New Testament prophets are different, and Ellen White was a New Testament prophet, and sometimes they have errors, and who knows what's true, what's not from God, and that kind of thing. In the midst of it, he, he shares this paragraph, and I think this hits the nail on the head. He says, the question must be asked, are we what? A free people. What does it mean by free? Free to grow in our understanding of the Bible? Free to disagree with what she has written in the areas of science, health, history, prophecy, and education, etc.? What should a person do if they find they have come to some other conclusion than what she has written? Do they surrender their private judgment? Yes! <laughs> Are we free, he says. Free to what? Free to maintain our own opinions. This is, to me, this is at the heart of all of this reinterpretation. I want to share with you in closing a couple statements Ellen White made in regard to these things. Notice this first from Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 68. Many times in my experience, she says, I have been called upon to meet the certain, I'm sorry, the attitude of a certain class who acknowledged that the testimonies were from God. Notice that part. They acknowledged the testimonies were from God, but took the position that this matter or that matter were what? Sister White's opinion and judgment. No, I believe they're from God, but I believe there are certain things she said, and that's her opinion. Now notice, what do you think was the deciding factor? Notice this next slide. Everything that sustains their cherished ideas is divine, and the testimonies to correct their errors are human, Sister White's opinions. Notice the wording. They make of none effect the counsel of God by their tradition. This is the very last deception of Satan. God forbid we fall into it. Now, Satan knows this is the very last deception. As I said, not chronologically, but he knows if he can get us to that position, then there is no voice left to save us from the deception of the enemy that will be so powerful in the last days. Even the elect would be deceived. Notice this final statement I'm going to share with you uh, this morning. The enemy has made his masterly efforts to unsettle the faith of our own people in the testimonies. Are you seeing that happen? And when these errors come in, she's talking about just the different errors people bring in our church. Notice, they claim, the people bringing the errors, they claim to prove all the positions by what? By the Bible. But they misinterpret the Scriptures. And after men have done their work in weakening the confidence of our churches in the testimonies, look at the language here, they have torn away the what? Ellen White is saying, my writings are serving by God to, as a barrier to God's people to keep the error out of the church. But when the faith of God's people is weakened in the testimonies, the barriers are torn down, and now what's left? When these people come in and say, oh no, it's all scriptural, right? They claim to prove these things by scripture, but they misinterpret. What's left? Notice the statement again. After men have done their work in weakening the confidence of our churches and the testimonies, they have torn away the barrier that unbelief in the truth shall become widespread. And there's what? No voice to be lifted up to stay the force of error. This is... Next slide, please. This is just as Satan designed it should be. And those who have been preparing the way 
For the people to pay no heed to the warnings and reproofs and the testimonies of the Spirit of God will see that a tide of errors of all kinds will spring into life. That's, that's happening. That's happening. In case you hadn't noticed, that's happening, and that's why I'm giving the seminar. Brothers and sisters, Lord, help us not to lose our confidence in the biblical foundations of our faith. And those biblical foundations include our belief in the gift of prophecy. Now, Dr. Knight wrote about the wonderful world of Ellen White, and I've countered that with the wonderful world of George Knight. And if you want to live in the wonderful world of George Knight and others and, and just assume that Ellen White didn't know, it was, she wasn't inspired and we can't trust what she says and, and she wasn't supposed to be used in the pulpit, and all, you can believe that fairy tale world. And when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven, you will find yourself unready and calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall on you. This is a serious matter. Very last deception of Satan. So I hope that you can benefit this week from some of the things we cover in this seminar. It will be live streamed. It will be recorded. Uh, for those of you who came in later, I asked specifically, I was going to do it in the commons. I told Elder Nelson I want it on good quality video because I was talking to somebody yesterday and I praise God for his mercy. I don't consider myself an expert on the spirit of prophecy. I don't consider myself an expert in much of anything. But I have, I have to share what God has given me. And I've had many people say they've been blessed by things I've shared on the spirit of prophecy and helped them to gain confidence. That's why I'm doing this. So I talk to them. I want, this to have, I want good quality video that's going to be accessible. You're not going to have to pay for it. I mean, there are going to be DVDs if you want to buy something like that. We're going to put it online. You can download it. It's going to be, you can give it to friends. That's the purpose. I want people to under now this yeah i want people to know the foundations for why we believe what we believe so i hope this has been a blessing this morning it's just the beginning we're going to get into some good stuff this week and uh, the entire camp meeting it's been a blessing so far hasn't it and i'm sure it will be as we continue let's finish with a word of prayer this morning if you bow your heads with me father in heaven father we've looked at a number of things this morning as we're considering the times we live in as we're considering the devil's attacks as we're considering the gift you've given to this last day church, to help us to be ready for the coming of Jesus. Father, I pray for all of those that I mentioned today, those outside and inside the church. Lord, my intention is not at all to demean or discredit somebody as a person. I can't read motives. But Lord, the truth needs to be clearer and clearer to us as a people. We pray the spirit of truth who inspired the prophets would give us that clarity this week. I pray for your continued blessing in all the different seminars of this camp meeting. I pray for our adult seminars. I pray for all of our youth programs and youth departments, Lord. I pray the Spirit of God would be poured out and that we all would receive or experience a, a, a real revival this week. And we thank you, Father, that we have this privilege to come together. We thank you that we can pray and be heard by a prayer hearing and prayer answering God. We thank you and we ask and pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. For his sake and the upbuilding of his kingdom. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.